Good morning. It is good to be here this morning with everyone. As we continue this morning, let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, show us Christ. Father, where else is there for us to go? We have no other place. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Open your word to us. Feed us the bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Being the richest man in the cemetery does not matter to me. Going to bed at night saying, we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. So said Steve Jobs of his life ambition. Jobs, of course, co-founder of the Apple Computer Company and legendary CEO, was, if nothing else, an iconic visionary. Now, this past Christmas, my wife got me a small Christmas gift I wasn't expecting. Inside my stocking was the audiobook version on the life of Steve Jobs simply entitled Steve Jobs. Uh, Like any Christmas gift we get that we weren't expecting, I toyed around with the idea of simply returning it. When I first looked at it, pulled it out, it didn't grab me right away. I ended up choosing to keep it, and the book has been so gripping and so interesting, I'm already on the third listen-through on it. There's some very interesting things that come out in it. For instance... Very early in the biography, Jobs explained that his goal was never to get rich. It was to change the world. And I found that interesting because most of us have this ingrained idea that those very high-profile American executives seem to really be in it just to become fabulously wealthy. So it struck me as very interesting. That's not what Jobs set out to do. He set out to change the world. Listen to Jobs in his own words. I was worth about a million dollars when I was 23. And over 10 million when I was 24. And over 100 million when I was 25. And it wasn't that important to me. Because I never did it for the money. In August of last year, just two months before his death... Apple Computers became the most valuable company in the world. The most valuable company in the world, surpassing ExxonMobil for that top spot. Jobs' passion for changing the world is perhaps no place better immortalized than the very famous conversation he had back many years ago. This was early to mid-80s. Steve Jobs approached another high-profile executive whose name was John Scully. Scully at the time, was president of the Pepsi-Cola company. And Scully uh, was the brainchild behind that very famous Pepsi ad campaign, Take the Pepsi Challenge. That was John Scully. Well, Steve Jobs was after this gentleman to bring him to Apple. And as the two engaged in a conversation where Steve Jobs was going to make his pitch to get him, Scully was playing hard to get, and so Jobs began to get a little frustrated. And at one point in the conversation... Jobs retorted these words that have been immortalized in history. He said to Scully, Scully, do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? Do you want to come with me and change the world? 
The body of Christ has a driving passion much, much greater than that of Steve Jobs. Our passion has impact beyond this world as we know it. It is to see people receive the crown of life through accepting Christ as their Savior. Our passion is to see people become kings and priests of the living God. Our role as the body of Christ is to change the world through being ambassadors for Christ. So if you will now take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That will be our text for today. A very familiar passage on what it means to be reconciled and what this ministry of reconciliation is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are so grateful you are here. You can find today's text on page 1300. And 76 of your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll give you just another moment to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verses 11 through verse 2 of chapter 6. So again, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Where Paul says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for the Lord. It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. Excuse me. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, 
Now is the day of salvation. From that text, we're going to pull out three points we're going to look at today, which you have in your outline. First, persuaded by the fear of the Lord. Second, controlled by the love of Christ. And third, imploring as ambassadors of the king. Now, these three points, the knowledge of the pending judgment of Christ, the love of Christ, and the reconciliation we've received because of Christ are the three motivating factors leading Paul in his own ministry of reconciliation and ought to be the three motivating factors in what lead us in our role as ambassadors for Christ. So let's take each one of those individually. Persuaded by the fear of the Lord. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade. Now, fear certainly is not something we are comfortable talking about, is it? It seems an odd thing to even bring it up in the context of this passage. It does seem an odd place for Paul to start. But for Paul, there is a healthy fear that everybody should have. Paul understands that life as we know it will come to an end in the return of Christ to usher in eternal life for those who have accepted Christ or eternal damnation for those who have refused Christ. This worldview or this this framework that the Bible presents to us is true. Paul references it here. And it should shape, shape all our reality. It should shape all our decisions in life that there is, in fact, a judgment day coming. Now, in verse 11, Paul says again, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, where on earth does Paul get that? Obviously, because verse 11 starts with a therefore, we look in the previous verse. Verse 10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, that verse, verse 10 is itself is a summary of all the apostle has said throughout chapter 5. Throughout chapter 5, if there's one core spiritual understanding the apostle Paul has, is that this life is not it. This life is not it. We see this hinted at by Paul throughout the chapter, particularly at the beginning of chapter 5, where he refers to our earthly bodies being tense, yet the coming permanent body referred to as a building from God. So through that contrasting analogy, he's showing this life is not it. And what we know of our bodies now will one day pass away for something permanent that awaits us. So, leading up to this stark statement in verse 10 about the judgment day, Paul's already laid the groundwork for what he's saying. Paul, indeed, has eternity on his mind. And these thoughts lead him to the conclusion that all of history stands with all of humanity one day standing to be judged. Now, notice several things we're going to look at about this judgment in verse 11. First, all of humanity will be there. Because Paul says very plainly, all must appear. Believer and unbeliever will stand before Christ at that judgment. This is our one great end. To one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Unbeliever and believer alike. Hebrews 9.27 says it very well when it says this. It is appointed to man to die once. And after that, the judgment. 
Scripture is very plain. This is the great end of all of history. It is the great end that all humanity will stand at. Second, from verse 11, it's before the judgment seat of Christ that all humanity will appear. Christ himself as righteous and perfect in his being is perfectly fit to be the great judge of all of humanity. And it would be he, the crucified and risen Lamb of God, in all of his glory that would be seated before us and would hand, will hand out our judgment. Third from verse 11. The point of this judgment is the presentation of evidence that would determine what our reward will be. The presentation of evidence to determine whether or not what we have done in this life was good and thereby meriting eternal life, or what was done in this life was evil, thereby meriting the sentence of eternal damnation. Now, what about this concept of receiving what was done in the body? A very confusing aspect of verse 11. Where does that come from? Is there anything else in Scripture? This idea of receiving what was due in the body. You can write these references down. We won't turn there now. But Matthew sixteen twenty seven says this. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter in the Bible, verse 12. We see Jesus saying this. Behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me. To repay everyone for what he has done. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 8 says this. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And time doesn't permit us now, but you can jot down Luke chapter 19, 11. That's the parable of the talents that you can look at on your own. Luke 19 verse 11. Now, what this verse is not saying is that we're saved based upon our works. That's not what it's saying. Rather, the works that are going to be presented at that great judgment day give testimony to how we lived in this life, whether or not we lived for ourselves or whether or not we lived for Christ. They are not what earn us entrance into our reward, earn us entrance into heaven. They are the, the evidence of our lives on this earth. For many of us, you're thinking of that very famous passage in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he says, there will be many that stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, essentially, look at what I've done for you. But we understand from that text, that text isn't saying that's how they're going to gain entrance into heaven. The point of that text is, is to say that they were wrong in thinking what they do for Christ in this life is what merits their salvation. It is a testimony to how they live their lives. It's just not the merit on which they receive entrance into God's kingdom. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 how we enter God's kingdom, how we merit eternal life. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God that on that judgment day, there will be some of us who hear the words, enter into your eternal reward with the Father. 
But there will be believer and unbeliever at that judgment on that day. The believer has this promise also in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that very famous text. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that judgment day for the believer, while we stand there with the unbeliever, that day is not a day of judgment in terms of condemnation for us. It is the day in which we are ushered into the eternal presence of the Father and receive the reward that he has prepared for us. So let me ask you this this morning. How do you view your life? How do you view your life in light of this text? Do you view all of history in light of the imminent return of Christ? To mete out judgment for what you've done? I think it was Jonathan Edwards, who was the great 18th century American preacher and theologian, who, who said, we should live with eternity stamped on our eyeballs. I thought that was a fantastic quote. We should live with eternity stamped on our eyeballs. There is a payday coming someday. What about you? Are you living with eternity stamped in your eyeballs? And are you allowing the pending judgment day to direct your life here and now? For Paul, this idea of the fear of the Lord, that pending judgment, became a motivating factor of how he lived his life now. That one motivating factor for Paul led to one all-consuming desire to see people get saved and be spared standing before Christ empty-handed on that day. That's why we have the ministry of reconciliation. There is a payday coming someday. Paul had a second motivating factor that led him to the ministry of reconciliation, and that is the love of Christ. Verse 14, the love of Christ. Let's read 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul intends his comments here in verse 14 to be an answer to his critics in the church of Corinth. In verses 11 to 13, You see in those verses, Paul seems to be making an odd, slight turn there. Paul is once again, in those verses, forced to give account for his apostolic ministry to those at the church in Corinth. Many in that troubled church were openly opposing the apostle because his lack of polish as a minister. It turns out that tradition tells us the apostle Paul was anything but an impressive physical feature, a physical presentation. According to tradition, the Apostle Paul at best was under five feet tall, apparently overweight, balding, and had bold legs. So essentially, the Apostle Paul is this short, chubby guy with no hair and bold bold legs. Not an impressive figure. On the other hand, in this troubled church, there were those who seemed very polished, very professional in their appearance. And the Corinthians got caught up in that, not understanding it's not based on outward appearance. It's based on... What Paul said in those verses on what is in the heart. That's the reason verse 14 begins with that little word for. Paul is saying that the legitimacy of his ministry of reconciliation is not on how he looks outwardly. It's hinged on this one great truth. That one has died for all. 
And that as a result of the legitimacy of his ministry, it is inextricably bound up in the one who atoned for his sins and called him into that ministry. So it doesn't matter outwardly what the minister looks like or how polished he may or may not be. It is all bound up in the fact that one has died for him and called him to this ministry of reconciliation. Paul realizes that this great truth that we call the substitutionary atonement of Christ, meaning there was a substitute who died for us to atone for our sins, hence substitutionary atonement, this great truth dismantles the centrality of all previous methods of understanding and evaluation. All things are now to be judged by what is in the heart, the apostle says. You can jot down in a margin someplace, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, And look at that wider context at another time. But that text says this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what we have in the death of Christ, returning to the text now, what we have in the death of Christ is a past point in time historical action that brings with it present and ongoing significance today. For everyone who repents and believes in Christ. That representative death so long ago still has power to save today. For Paul, this truth is so incomprehensible that it brings him to conclude one thing at the outset of verse 14. The love of Christ controls me. In light of this, what can we say? The love of Christ controls me, Paul said. Now, our various English translations, you were there for control in verse 14. Whether it's control, it could be constrain, urge, impel. It's a strong word that Paul is envisioning here, which flows from the accomplished work of Christ on behalf of the redeemed sinner. We are pressed into service as a result of this death. What else can we do? Notice the intent or impact that this death has. Returning to the text, the intent and impact of this death. It most necessarily purchases the salvation of the sinner that repents and believes. It's not for a potential atonement or a potential salvation. Because one died, therefore all died. It procures, it secures what it set out to do. The all there, uh, in verse 14, is a reference to a class of people. In other words, the all of those who would truly repent and believe, that's for whom he died. Again, there was a death of a a representative to pay for the sins of all those who repent and believe in him. And it will most necessarily secure the salvation of those people. We know this because we know that some... Well, we know the all can't possibly refer to all of humanity because we all know people who seem to leave this life never having repented and believed in Christ. But the atonement of Christ does secure what it set out to do in the salvation of the sinner. So we go out and we exhort everybody to repent and believe and receive that. Now, many of you may not be too familiar with that uh, great 19th century English preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon 
said this of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In talking to other pastors, he said, We shall not cease, dear brethren, in our ministry, most definitely and decidedly to preach the atoning sacrifice. And I will tell you why I shall be sure to, to do that. I have not personally a shadow of a hope of salvation from any other quarter. I am lost if Jesus not be my substitute. I have been driven up into a corner by a pressing sense of my own personal sin and have been made to despair of ever doing or being such that God could accept me in and of myself. What a merciful expression of God it is that he that he would grant to us a pressing sense of our own sin. It is necessary that prior to entering the kingdom of God, we come to an absolute end in ourselves in ever attempting to make ourselves right with God. Oh, friends, that we would pray together. If you are here today and you do not know Christ, oh, that we would pray together and with you and for you that you would come to know the pressing sense of your sin against you. What a grace of God it is to receive that. If you receive that, if you are visiting here today and you have a sense of your sins pressing in against you, then you are near to the kingdom of God. Repent and believe and enter in. Now, just as Paul envisioned himself as being pressed into service of that ministry of reconciliation, so too is each one of us. How else can we respond, I've already said, in light of the fact that a substitute went before us to accomplish what we could not. So Paul is pressed into service. And that service brings us to our third point, imploring as ambassadors of the king. Verse 20 and following. Imploring as ambassadors of the king. Paul's main point there in verse 20 is the obvious one that because we have been reconciled with the Father through Christ... We are now necessarily on a singular mission to proclaim that message. We are saved by this reconciliation or reconciling work of Christ necessarily to be put on mission to then take that message to others. That is why we exist as the body of Christ in this world until Christ returns. To be his ambassadors because of the greatness of the message we herald. All things we do. Therefore, all things we do as a local church must be evaluated in terms of whether or not it is directly assisting us in that great mission. Because that is why we were called out of the world and adopted into God's family. And we are now kings and priests set aside as ambassadors, messengers, representatives of God. And it is as if God is imploring through us. To tell others, be saved. The Apostle Peter put it much the same way in 1 Peter 1 verse 9 when he said this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, is it us being sent out in our own strength or on our own volition? 
in this ministry of reconciliation? No. Again, just as Paul said in verse 14, we too are constrained to do nothing else but proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. There is indeed inherent within the nature of the gospel, by the way, it's inherent within the nature of the gospel message that a universal call to repent and believe go out. And then we trust God with the results that whomever he will to save, he will do as we are faithful in that proclamation. That is why we must go out as ambassadors and be active in that ministry. That is why we have a ministry called Christianity Explored, which as we'll continue, I'll address briefly in in a moment. Now, notice back to the text in verse 18. What does all this come? Does it come from us? Is it of our own doing? No, all this is from God. So everything Paul is talking about comes from God. God is the result. God is the one seeking to accomplish something here. And again, look further up in the chapter. In verse 5, we see this. Pretty much the same phrase again. He who has prepared this very thing is God. God is the architect of all this. It is he who condescends to save anybody. We don't help in that endeavor. It is those that the Father intends to save that Christ came to die for. But we know that there are many, many out there, so we never cease in preaching the gospel to all. Now, as we talk further about this idea of the ministry of reconciliation, taking this message out in our role as ambassadors for Christ, we also need to look inwardly at another aspect there in the text. Reconciliation primarily is vertical and only secondarily horizontal. Reconciliation is primary vertical, primarily vertical, and only secondarily is it horizontal. The only hope we have for reconciled relationships among one another and to have in our church as a church body an attitude, a humble attitude of reconciliation among us, is that first we must be reconciled to God. That is the paradigm. Reconciliation is primarily vertical. One of the fruits of vertical reconciliation is that we know what it is to reconcile horizontally. Now, vertical, excuse me, reconciliation is primarily vertical for this reason. God is the chief offended party because of our sins. God is the chief offended party. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity states this. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people for whom their sins had undoubtedly impacted. Jesus unhesitatingly behaved as if he were the party chiefly concerned. The person chiefly offended in all our offenses. Isaiah 59 verse 2, and you can write that down, says this. Isaiah 59 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But oh, how important it is that once we become reconciled to the Father, that we reconcile with one another and have permeating within us an ongoing atmosphere of reconciliation as the body of Christ. So our mission as ambassadors for Christ, the one great mission has two great ends. 
the reconciliation of sinners with God as we proclaim this message. And then second, us living reconciled and peaceful lives with one another. This is the greatest testimony. That's the greatest testimony of the authenticity of the gospel message. And we would see so many more people come into saving faith in Christ if we just first live this out among us. And I'm the first one to admit I need to do that more authentically with all of you. Because of this, we can be assured what we believe about the vertical nature of reconciliation will be testified to by how we live it out in the horizontal context. The disciple of Jesus, uh, John, in his gospel, said it this way. In John chapter 13, verses, verse 35, John 13, 35, By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Reconciliation is primarily vertical, secondarily horizontal. The horizontal gives testimony to what we believe about the vertical. Many, many years ago, there was a ministry that got started called Royal Ambassadors. Many of you are probably familiar with that ministry. And, of course, as you would guess, Royal Ambassadors, the organization Royal Ambassadors, takes its theme from this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The organization grew out of a need for boys to learn that they are commissioned as Christ's ambassadors to go into the world and tell the story of Jesus Christ. It's an organization that grew through enthusiasm for missions and sharing the gospel message. To date, over 3 million boys have participated in this Royal Ambassador organization since its inception in 1908. Now in existence for well over a century, the organization has grown into a worldwide ministry with a passion to see people live out this admonition in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, that we are ambassadors for Christ. And therefore, inherently, we are on mission as God's people. After nearly a century of shaping millions of Christian young men into ambassadors for Christ, and with groups in 14 countries worldwide, Royal Ambassadors is now an international organization reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, helping many, many churches and individuals practically fulfill that command in their lives. Well, we have been reconciled to the Father. What great news that we had a substitute who came and accomplished what we could not. And as a result, we are constrained into the service of the one who has called us. There were three motivating factors for the Apostle Paul. Paul was persuaded by the fear of the Lord, controlled by the love of Christ, and imploring as an ambassador of the king. Because we've been reconciled through Christ, we have a unique opportunity here at New Village in so many ways to fulfill that mission. All things must be judged in light of how it helps us with that mission. That mission, the reality of this text, this text becomes the barometer of of much of what we do as a local church. Uh, Christianity Explored is one very practical way. There are many ways through the life of this church that we seek to live this out. Christianity Explored is one of those. It is coming up March 4th 
You'll hear more about it in just a moment. Christianity Explored is a evangelistic Bible study through the Gospel of Mark. Excuse me, through the Gospel. Yes, Gospel of Mark. Thank you. It is a wonderful course. If you are not here today and you want, oh, if you are here today, if you're not here today, you're not here in this. If you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, hear one thing today and hear one thing as many times as you ever come back. We want you to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That is why we are here. That is why we exist. Then I invite you, if you need to know more about that, come out to Christianity Explored. Ask us about what it is, when it is. Very practically speaking, those of you who just came through the membership class, if you, in that membership class, have not previously sat in on one of the Christianity Explored Sessions classes, we invite you, we encourage you to do that on this particular session that's about to begin. Now, very practically, when you leave today, in just a moment, we're going to show a video. After that, we'll be dismissed. When you go outside, there's going to be a couple laptop computers. We want to, this is such a great course. We want to take so seriously this mission we are on. We're going to have some computers outside. Registration is on the website. Those computers will have the website up at the guest reception desk. You can go from this service and directly register on the website. Just please make sure if it's spouse and husband, you each use a different form. If you're someone who's bringing a, a guest from outside the church, that would be a different form as well. I don't want to end today without saying this. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, then listen to the way Paul ends his text again. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're here today, what prohibits you from accepting Christ? Come and inquire more. We want to help you in that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have reconciled us. Father, what indescribable news that we have been reconciled. And Father, with the Apostle Paul, we have been constrained to do nothing else but to go out and proclaim it as your ambassadors. May we do that more fully at New Village Church. May you build up your kingdom as we seek to be more effective in that endeavor. Father, we anticipate you doing great things in Christianity explored. In Jesus' name, amen.